This episode of See Here is dedicated to the Icarus line. Rest in peace. to episode 55 of the See Here podcast. Welcome on board. This is a program where we talk about music-related films, narratives, documentaries, shorts, longs, whatever. As long as it's got music somewhere in the subject, we'll talk about it. Good, bad, we cannot be bribed, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, joining me, as they always do, from Seoul in South Korea for the final time. For the final time in Seoul, South Korea, not for the final time of the show. Mr. Tim Merrill. Howdy. In Bath, in England, Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good evening. We're here to talk about the film The Icarus Line Must Die, a narrative directed by Michael Grodner, came out in 2017. And rather than us sort of harping on about the film for the next 45 to 50 minutes like we normally would, we feel very fortunate that we managed to secure an interview with the film's director, Michael Grodner. And what we'll be doing is going now to the trailer. And after that, we'll be talking with Michael about the film. Just as a brief thing, the film follows the last few weeks or days in the the, uh, life of a band called the Icarus Line. Now, the Icarus Line were a real band. First thing watching this, I thought that this was completely a fictitious story, but this film involves a telling of the last few weeks involving stories in the life of this band, and in particular its lead singer, songwriter, lead personality, one Joe Cardamone, and there's all sorts of wonderful people who were in the Icarus Line's sphere of existence, and they make appearances in this film. So Michael will talk to us about what that entailed and have some fascinating stories about his life prior to making this film and during the making of this film. Some great people involved. So uh, we'll just go to the trailer, and then we'll be back to talk with Michael about the Icarus Line Must Die. You're listening to See Here, episode 55. The man, the myth, the legend, Joe Cardamone from the Icarus Line. What is the state of the Icarus Line right now in your life? After 17 years of doing this, he wears me out. This record sounds great, but it's like blatantly anti-commercial. I don't really know what to do with this record, to be honest. We're in trouble. We put so much time and money into this place. We just gotta get serious. Anytime you see someone from the old crew, they're like a shell of their former self. Kind of makes me wonder if I'm the same way. Death threats have not stopped. I don't know who it is. But don't let me save your soul. 
This is the gun Hitler used to blow his brains out. If you want some real protection, this is a 45. There's no band right now, you know what I mean? It's rock music. It's not like you're splitting the atom. You just set up, plug in, and just blow it up. there welcome back to episode 55 of the see here podcast and on a skype connection we have from los angeles mr michael grodner the director of the new film the icarus line must die welcome to see here michael thanks for having me it's our pleasure thank you very much for joining us wanted to say congratulations on your debut feature film as a director before we get to talking about the icarus line must die just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done before doing a little bit of a cursory look around the internet it looks like you'd been involved in a web series called Dirty Laundry and that had a really interesting concept. Would you mind talking a little bit about what Dirty Laundry is all about? Hey, how are you? Carrie Kay here back with another episode of Dirty Laundry and today we're here with Joe Cardamone from the Icarus Line. How are you, Joe? I'm okay. It's hot out there. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, Dirty Laundry TV has been going on for about, oh, maybe nine years. I guess this will be our 10th year. Wow. The concept is we interview bands in a laundromat while they do their laundry. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we've done over 200 episodes. We've interviewed everybody from like Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth to Ariel Pink to uh, The Slits. We have a lot of young bands. We have some of these older bands. Like we have Mike Watt from The Minutemen or Keith Morris from Black Flag or yeah. we've had Atari Teenage Riot. Just, you know, runs a gamut. Basically what happens is bands will come through L.A. Maybe they're like stopping off. They're playing in L.A. Then maybe they go on to, say, San Diego or San Francisco and they've got to do their laundry. So they come into the laundromat <laughs> and we uh, we corner them pretty much and, and shoot an interview with them. So, yeah, it's on YouTube and we also have our uh, a website Dirty Laundry TV. So what were the logistics of getting consistent use of a particular laundromat? Did you have a friend in the laundry industry? I wish, man. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it started off where our little crew would just sort of bum rush this laundry that in the neighborhood and yeah. then hope like nobody would bug us. And right. then they started bugging us. So we were like, all right, we, you know, we, we have to pay a little bit. So maybe we, you know, pay like $20 or something to, to be able to shoot there. Yeah. And we found a laundromat that was cool with us shooting there because, I mean, I don't know how it is in different parts of the world, but if you're in LA and you take out a camera and a boom, everybody thinks um, automatically assumes that you're like CSI or something like that and they're like <laughs> right. waiting to get they're waiting to get like the big bucks right we certainly didn't have so we, yeah, we shot on a laundromat for a period of time and they were pretty cool like every time like I said maybe it would be like 20 bucks or something like that but then when you shoot a show for nine years the things change so that laundromat like got demolished and we ended up finding a new one so far no one has come up to us yet so we just just keep our head down and shoot also I've noticed 
this from, I can't remember which page it was, but I found that there's a bunch of uh, video clips. So it seems to be, you know, the common thing, the rite of passage for a lot of directors to start out making rock video clips. And one band which really caught my eye, absolutely loved, was the band Civet and their song Son of a Bitch. Yeah, yeah. And and I don't know if Civet is still around, but that was a pretty cool band. That was a fun video to shoot. But yes, yeah, pretty much started shooting music videos. So like in the early 2000s and did a bunch, you know, a lot of indie rock stuff and a lot of punk videos, a band called Cursive. I did a couple of videos for and A Plane's Mistaken for Stars. And I love working with bands. I like working with music and obviously film and, and that kind of mix is is something I like to do a lot. So what was the point like early on in your life where you thought, I love music, I'm presuming you were going out to bands where you thought, I want to make music and film my life. Was there like a, a focal point? Was there something that you watched that you thought, I can do that? Not necessarily. You know, obviously, look, music videos are a, you know, it's a kind of a, a stepping stone in a sense as well. So, you know, I think everybody who's making music videos has their eye on making a feature eventually. Sure. It just seemed like a natural fit just because I'm being a huge music fan and then being a, you know, a huge film fan and, and, you know, incredibly passionate about both of those. It's a nice outlet for that. But I think in particular, like making this film, The Icarus Line Must Die, that certainly came out of of, of Dirty Laundry TV uh, and making these in the interviews. I mean, I would not have met Joe Cardamone from the film had it not been for him a appearing on Dirty Laundry TV twice. Before sort of going into seeing this film, I'd never heard of the Icarus line. I didn't realize that they were a real band. And it seemed through watching the film, I wasn't sure whether this was supposed to be like a fictionalized account of their last phase or if it was supposed to be a biographical take on what actually happened the last few weeks of their existence or uh, really I guess it focuses more on Joe than the band the Icarus line and without you know wanting to spoil it to the potential viewing audience you know what happens in the end is not something that would have happened in real life but how did you approach how you wanted to tell this story did you want it to be a more or less true version of events the last few weeks or months or whatever of the Icarus line or of Joe Carterman well there was there's kind of two ways to go about it there's you know make a film about the Icarus line the band who and they have like a storied past and and it's a you know a pretty interesting one I mean they came about in the say late 90 early 2000s when a lot of these bands like the Strokes White Stripe yeah, 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 as we're getting signed to major label deals. They never really fit in with those bands and, and they were kind of going on their own path. They were like a terror on the road, you know. They toured with the Strokes and they 
you know, spray painted, you know, sucking dicks on the, the Strokes tour bus. You know, <laughs> they were just just a lot of bad behavior and they kind of they were a notorious band. And the thing is, what was interesting to me was that's an interesting story in itself. But I thought what would be interesting would be to show the life of a member of such a band 15 years after that period. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I decided to make the film, I thought it would be interesting to make a film because I've known Joe for years. And at the point of his career, he was turning 36 or he's 36 years old. And the Icarus Line was signed to a major label back in the early 2000s. But now in 2018, you know, Joe still, or when we made the film, Joe still had the Icarus Line. And I thought, well, that's an interesting sort of part of somebody's life, especially a, a leader of a rock band. It's like he's no longer a kid anymore. He still has the band. And I thought, but he's still, you know, he's got a lot of integrity and he's still doing it. And it's like, how do you keep doing it? How do you keep the electricity running, but still keep your band and still trying to remain true to your sort of like punk rock self? And I thought that was an interesting point to tell a story. So what we did was when we decided to make the film, and I don't want to give too much away about the story of the film, but I thought telling the story of, you know, we we tried to make the film Joe had just signed a major label deal, another deal. But I thought, what happens if we go backward in time, say three months, four months before that, when he didn't know whether he was going to sign a deal? He had just gotten married as well, but he was about to get married. I thought that's right. an interesting part because here's a guy, he doesn't know which end is up. He doesn't know whether he even has a band because he's literally, you know, he's the main force behind the band. Yeah. So it's like, how do, you, how do you keep it all together when you don't know whether you're going to succeed seed or not and you know everything just could just fall apart any moment so that's what we did is basically the the, the story of the icarus line must die is going back in time and and basically uh, taking all these elements true stories from joe's life as a leader of this band and telling a story taking those true events and building a story out of it and it's stories and, and events that have happened to him over the last say 10 15 years so uh, michael I, I was curious as to how much of the film is you and how much of it is joe so obviously you work together on the screenplay and it obviously is is based on Joe and his experiences, but uh, I'm curious, did, did you approach him? Did he approach you initially? And as I say, how much of it was you? How much of it was Joe? Okay, so I had this other film that I was trying to get off the ground for a number of years. And it was a film that was going to cost a few million dollars. And one of these things where the money was coming in and then the next thing you know it was falling out and then oh we've got another investor here and then the next thing that guy disappears so it would it got to a point where i was at the end of my rope where the money that we thought we had just mm -hmm. fell out and i said to myself you know what i have to make a film you know i i just can't keep waiting for investors or or money to come in i just have to do it i thought i don't have a million dollars to make a movie i have low amount of money but I thought, well, how could I make a movie for, say, very little money? And it to work, to fit the aesthetic of what I want to do. You know, obviously there's this whole mumblecore movement. You know, they make films like that. Where, but I thought, you know, I've always loved the movies of the uh, the Lower East Side from the late 70s, early 80s, this kind of no wave right. uh, period of filmmaking. Amos and, Polo and Beth B and those guys. Exactly. It's, it's yeah. funny you, yeah, funny you mentioned that. Uh, both of those people. And, and, you know, Jim Jarmusch as well. Right. And, uh, and I thought, well, if you 
see the foreigner would buy Amos Poe. I mean, you know, here here's a guy who who just made a film, you know, casting friends or artists or other filmmakers in the movie. I mean, I think Deborah Harry's in that film. But the cast and everybody who's in those films is, is super interesting and super authentic. Perhaps not the most fantastic actors around, but you know what? It doesn't matter. Sure. Because there's such a there's an energy to those films that that money can't buy. You know. Right. Right. So, right. Right. Um, so I thought, well, I'd love to make that. I mean, and and they're punk rock films. I mean, even if they're not about a punk musician, their sure. films have a punk aesthetic and a punk ethos to them. So I thought, why don't I make a, a punk rock film? Why don't I make a rock and roll movie, made, like, but a no-wave movie? And instead of doing it on the streets of the Lower East Side, I can move it to Los Angeles. I know the Icarus line, and I always thought that Joe would be a great subject or, or the center of a movie like this. I mean, he's a charismatic guy. He has a great look. He's a fascinating guy, compelling figure. And I thought, you know, I knew a bit what was going on with the Icarus line at the time. And I thought, okay, well, why don't I pitch this to Joe. So I pitched the concept to Joe, what I wanted to do. You catch a band at the right time, the right place, and he was into it. So we uh, collaborated on the screenplay, which essentially was a very detailed outline. Took his stories, took, you know, all these different events and situations that are true and, and came from his career and his life. And I sort of created this three-act structure, and I structured it very much like I would structure a detailed outline for a screenplay. And that's how it came to pass. It's funny, you know, like in Los Angeles, to me at least, it seems like it's just this big ocean and, you know, and there's people that all they want to do is get above the surface. There's been so many bands that just about get up there for a breath of air and then they're back down under again. Like I'm just thinking in particular, like a band like The Nymphs or like Clawhammer or some of my favorite bands out of L.A. They had one second of notoriety or, you know, or they had their one little moment and then they were back under again, you know, and, and it was just... The whole thing about how long can you hold your breath? How long can you keep going? And like you're saying, this thing about Joe turning 36 and not knowing which end was up and all of this thing. There's a point in the film that I think is interesting where he's sitting down in a, in a diner at dinner with his girlfriend where she's saying, listen, you know, I have to pay for this. I have to pay for this. I have to pay for all these things. I'd never tell you to walk away from the band or give up your band. But, and there's that whole thing about where does he remain steadfast and being the center of this chaos, universe of chaos that he's familiar with? Or does he basically try to venture into the unknown of, shall I say, being an adult or growing up or evolving or going forward or doing something different? And to me, that's the whole crux of it. To go from the chaos of familiarity that you know to the chaos of the unknown that you're not sure about. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that scene in particular really hits home with 
with me. I'm not a musician. I've never been in a band. I've never tried to start a band. But I'm a filmmaker, and I, I totally relate with that conversation. You know, that's a conversation I've had with my wife. I mean, that's the moment for me where, I mean, Joe and I have talked about this. The film is about the Icarus line. The film is about Joe Cardamone. But in a sense, it's really about an artist or a creative right. person. You know, whether it's L.A., whether it's New York, whether it's Seoul, whether it's Melbourne. It's a struggle that everybody kind of goes through as a creative person and is in an art versus commerce, you know? Right. And, I mean, there's something interesting about L.A. because you do have a lot of... I mean, but this is the music industry in general. I mean, there's, you know, plenty of bands that you're like, man, why didn't they make it? They should have been right. huge. Right. And But you really never heard from them again. But I, I do find what's interesting is that there are some guys, some guys, some women, they're lifers. Oh, yeah. And they're going to they're gonna make music or make art no matter what, whether they have, they taste that, that fame or that success or not. And they're going to find a way. I mean, having been in L.A. for a number of years, I, I know these people. I mean, there's some really great, great people who maybe never attain the success of, say, Jack White, but are still going and, and still kind of, they you carve out a path, you know. Apart from the Jim Jarmusch connection, I never would have thought that we'd find a connection between the Icarus line must die and the Leningrad Cowboys go America. But just based on what you're saying there, Michael, we were discussing the Leningrad Cowboys go America for last month's episode of the podcast. And once again, they're a band in the world of that film that are going to make music no matter what. It's their manager that wants them to get the success. But regardless of whether they're performing on a stage for an unappreciative audience or whether they're sitting around a campfire or lying on a cot on top of a building or sitting in the car or in a jail cell, they're always making music because it's just what they have to do. Yes, absolutely. It's on the cutting room floor, but I guess, I mean, he talks about how people call him the cockroach because he's just going to be there. <laughs> he's going <laughs> he's never going to leave. He's going to he's going to constantly be there. You can't uh, snuff him out. I was going to say that uh, I was really taken with the look of the film. I think that the locations are fantastic. You kind of get to see the suburbs outside of what you would normally see of LA I think and the cinematography I thought was very striking and is it uh, Joseph Mandel who was your cinematographer yeah uh, J Jacob Mandel sorry Jacob yeah sorry. Yeah, yeah yeah I just wondered uh, how, how do you know Jacob have you worked together before yeah, Jacob and I have worked together a bunch before. This is the first feature we've ever worked together. But he, like I, we're both huge film nerds, film buffs. Yeah. So he got, I obviously got sort of the references, you know, certain, definitely certain look we're going for. And he was able to achieve that, which was great. It's fun when you're shooting with somebody and you can throw out a reference like, this is our Polanski shot. And he knows exactly what I'm talking sure, about. Sure, right. This is Touch of Evil, right? This this is what yeah. I'm going for is Touch of Evil. And he knew exactly what i'm talking about so yeah we hit it off that way and it, it, you know it's great working with him and yeah no he's has a great eye and yeah. you know we enjoyed working on it it's interesting you say yeah uh, touch of evil because i've very much got a kind of la noir feel as well I right. think you could um, you could definitely see an influence of uh, some of those kind of movies in it as well. Oh yeah, obviously shooting in black and white can't get away from that. But I also think that the Icarus Line is a dark band. There's a darkness that kind of surrounds them and their history and who they are, and that really feeds into that look. You're not going to have like pastels <laughs> in this movie, you know. <laughs> all the uh, all the cool, interesting stuff happens uh, right. under cover of the night, doesn't it? Amongst the shadows, yeah. so right. it and makes perfect sense. Yeah. Run to the water now, run to the edge, run to the elevator, straight to hell. 
Piss on the sick, kiss on the dirt, kiss for the family that got shoved up your skirt. We made a conscious effort to show, I say, a side of LA that perhaps you don't necessarily see in films. Sure. That right. I think you succeeded. I think you did a good job with that. Oh, thanks. And a lot of the old clubs. I mean, you shot at the Echoplex, right? Yeah, no, with the Echo and the Echoplex are clubs that I go to all the time. And the people who run it are friends, you know, supportive of the music scene and supportive of Joe and supportive of myself. Right. So uh, they were very cool and, and were very open to us shooting there. You know, there's a whole history of like, you know, from the late 80s and the early 90s, you know, places like Raji's and the older clubs are now long gone in L.A., and, you know, it, it's just those those clubs that are last standing, you know, like the Coconut Teaser and all the old the old places where bands used to play. And now it's just like they're just in the dust. So it was actually nice to see when the band was performing in an old place that was kind of familiar. Like I'm thinking I, I've seen that place before. Like I've seen footage in, in bands playing that place before. Yeah, yeah, no, the anti-club and yeah, but what was really important for me for the and and for the film was to to really give this create a world that is accurate and and mm -hmm. that is uh, true. You know, we shot along York, which is in Highland Park. Mm -hmm. We shot at Future Music. We shot at Permanent Records, and you know that's a, that's really sort of a, a important part of the scene these days. Maybe not so much back in the say a late '80s, early '90s. Right. And then you know, like a place like Burr King, you know, which is right down the block from the Echo, and Tax, which is right down the block from the Echo. It's very accurate as to these places that musicians will drink at, musicians are going to eat at, where you go after you see it, go to a show. It was important that we created this world. That, mm -hmm. that was important. Right. When you were talking about uh, the old stalwarts that uh, will never die, how did you manage to get old Uncle Keith into the film? Uh, he's your uncle? Uh, uh, no, I, call, um... I call him Uncle Keith. He's a friend of mine. He's a friend of mine. I just say, hey, Uncle okay. Keith. Yeah, no, Keith is awesome. So Keith has been on Dirty Laundry a couple of times. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to wash other people's underwear, right? That was one of your pro yeah, but they're clean now. You can touch them. They're, they're just boxers. <laughs> you know, I've known him. I wanted to do another project with him several years back. Okay, so Keith was all when when Joe was assigned to V2 Records. Keith was working at V2 Records. I mean, he was the assistant to the head of A uh, and R there, and I, he eventually became an A and R guy himself there. So he has a history with the Icarus Line, and he knows Joe. And he, I mean, when he says in the film that Pen and Soiree is his favorite album that V2 ever put out, I mean, that's that's the truth. So yeah, we were able to convince him to be in the picture, and and he's great. You know, he's such a kind of a legend and an important part part of the scene it was really happy to have him there yeah it was awesome i mean i love that bit where he's talking to joe and he says look man what we're doing isn't rocket scientists you know you, you you just get out there and just bang you just put it out he's got an exuberance to him a real energy that i've always loved that's never gone away yeah, well, that's what I love about Keith uh, is that, I mean, he has got a passion about music that, you know, you might not agree with him all the time, but that passion comes through and it's and it's very infectious. And he talks about a book that he's writing in the movie, and he did eventually write that autobiography. Right. And it, I don't know if you've read it, but it's excellent. It's oh, yeah, it's good. It's good. One thing I was going to talk about was the mood of the film. Despite the fact that Joe, at the beginning of the film, he's got you know, his girlfriend saying, you need to step up to the plate and earn money and he's got musicians leaving the band and he has a partner in the studio who's saying you've got to stop letting people in come in for free and he's getting death threats 
and yet the film never has a despondent mood about it. Were you sort of aware up front about how you wanted the viewer to perceive the film because there's so many things going on here and you've already gone and said that there's a lot of dark subject matter going on and yet the film, at least to my way of thinking, maybe it's because of so much musical presentation, it never actually feels like a despondent film. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. You know, it's a conscious choice and a conscious effort on my part to not have it go down a dark, I don't want to say self-indulgent hole, but it could be self-indulgent if it got too dark and too heavy. So that was certainly a conscious effort of mine to keep it. So it, it isn't, I mean, so it's authentic and real, but I mean, death threats are a scary and an awful thing. And there are, you know, scenes in it that are poignant because of some of the characters and the kind of the situations they're in but it was never my choice to make it a dark dark film did joe actually receive death threats in real life yeah i mean this is it's I mean, pretty much everything in the film it comes from real stories so the you know the icarus line has had a, a, a very uh, interesting history where a lot of different members have come in and out and and as a result of that some people might have been unhappy with the way things are going. I don't know if he ever really seriously found out who it was. There were anonymous death threats that he was receiving. It was a serious situation for him and, and a very uh, scary one. It impacted him quite a bit. I mean, in all those text death threats that he received are all the actual wording of the threats that he did receive in real life. Huh. Oh, wow. Jeez. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Maybe it's a little darker than you originally thought. moments which seem very suspenseful and right. yet coming away from it I never sort of felt truly depressed I mean it, it, you might watch a Michael Haneke film and you come right. away from that feeling dread very <laughs> dread and down and I never got that feeling coming from this and I'm as I suggested maybe it's because there's you know so much music in the film and a lot of it's so energetic and maybe I'm feeding more off the music and maybe I'm wondering without the music whether the film would have gone down a different path and I'm not saying one's better than the other it's just the feeling that I got from it yeah no it's definitely a conscious effort and I do love Michael Haneke <laughs> I like feeling dread from those pictures but yeah I didn't think that was necessarily the tone I wanted to strike with this can you tell us a little bit about the LA underground scene? I mean, you've got some other bands in the film, like uh, Retox and Pink Mountaintops, so I'm presuming they were fellow travellers with the Icarus line through their existence over the years and you know, good mates of the band. Could their stories have equally been told? I mean, if they've been around for a long time, they did they have a similar story to Joe? I mean, I'm not necessarily talking about in the little details, but were they bands that just had to keep on going? Yeah, well, I mean, Justin Pearson, who is the uh, main guy of Retox, is, he's a really fascinating guy, too, and a, a really compelling presence. You know, he was in a band called The Locust years yeah. ago, and he runs 3-1-G Records, which is a really interesting interesting label out of San Diego. Um, and he's also in a band called Dead Cross right now. He's, in his own right, he's a compelling figure and probably worthy of a film as well. I mean, what's interesting is 
Joe has this studio, which, you know, he actually does have a recording studio. And as a result of the Equestine, but it also is this, having this studio. In a way, it's he's very much a three degrees of Joe Cardamone in a sense. You know, Ariel Pink is a friend of Joe's and is recorded with him. I mean, he's also been on Dirty Laundry, but Joe is certainly tight with him. And Obliterations is Sam Veldy, uh, who is um, the leader of that. And they he's known Joe for, for years and years. Justin, I mean, I remember seeing a few years ago, I saw Retox open up for the Icarus line at the Roxy. And Pink Mountaintops, I know Stephen McBean from the from Pink Mountaintops, who also is in a band called Black Mountain. He's recorded with Joe. And, and so it's very sort of somewhat, I would say incestuous, but it's like there's a lot of overlapping and the reason why these folk people were in the film I, I mean I brought on a band called Together Pangea who I'm a big fan of I don't know if they had necessarily had a relation with Joe but uh, I know that I think Keith Morris is a fan of theirs as well so yeah I mean it's again it was a conscious effort to bring in sort of like maybe these more established bands and, and some of these new bands and just have this mix of people I guess that's the beauty of any kind of scene like that wherever you go there's the, uh, the slightly older more well known bands and the newer bands coming up up and you know like you say there's a little bit of incestuousness because everybody knows everyone and everyone goes to each other's shows and people are supportive of each other and um i think yeah i think you did a really good job of kind of showing that in the uh, in the la uh, scene so cool yeah and and it's yeah there's a guy named john seidel who's in the movie who is the guy who signed the icarus line back in the day yeah. and i mean yeah i mean and and he hired keith morris you know to be his assistant so it's a small world it's a small it's world connected yeah. No, it's funny if you you were talking about you know that these are the whole film basically is comprised of events of Joe's past because I was thinking if some of it was fiction there's a point in the film where he's just sitting in his backyard with his laptop looking at all the rejection emails from labels and the first thing that came into my mind was if this is supposed to be now why doesn't he have a soundcloud page why didn't the icarus line have you know like their own way to self-promote but then as you're explaining now that it was you know part of the past and part of his history i'm thinking okay that makes sense you know there's a certain diy aspect i mean i know soundcloud certainly is a you know part of that diy package i know i know what you're saying but it's not like it used to be i mean i remember the days when you know you go out at nine o'clock in the morning and you'd poster like 900 blocks you know like every every telephone pole that you could get your hands on you'd staple you know your your gig poster on there and that was the way you got it done i, I remember that very clearly still doing it oh yeah was, that's great yeah i'm that's still great. out there i'm still out there doing it joe's still doing it that's great man because you know that's the thing to keep the old ways and like what i meant about the soundcloud thing was that i think it's interesting how Things have changed today where it's just like, you know, back in the day, you know, you gave somebody your cassette and now it's just like, oh, well, you can download my MP3. And it's not right. the same. It's not the same anymore. It's very clinical. I don't know. It's just it's different, Tim. I think it's just a di different delivery system, isn't it? It's not the same as a, an individual saying, I want you to hear this and putting it in your hand, man. You know, like it's it's not the same as it used to be. I mean, I don't know. No, it, yeah. You used to go to shows, you go to shows, you give people zines, you know, or you give people cassettes. And it was just more of a face to face. I think that kind of adds to the film, too, because it's like where 
Joe doesn't know who wants to kill him. And yet every time he, he wants to go you know, where he does his business is, you know, at a club where there's, you know, like millions of strangers or, you know, he could just he interacts with all these people and you don't know who it is. That's the I can uh, the trick of the tape. You know, that's what he has to do is, you know, he, he plays in, you know, in clubs and and it's the whole interaction. In this day and age, there's you know, a lot of it's gone, or at least it seems to me that a lot of it's, it's it's not the same anymore. No, true, and but but I do think you know, and there's an aspect to it in the film uh, where where you still need to like get out there. <laughs> you know, there's right. there's live music and there's people going to shows, and you, yep. you still need to make that personal contact. You know, absolutely, um, absolutely. Has the film been received? Is it been showing on the film festival circuit? Has it been screened since you released it? Yeah, well, we you know we got into a film festival about a year ago in LA, and then from there things have been you know great. I mean, we've had a lot of great screenings at film festivals throughout the world, and we won a best feature award at the Highland Park Film Festival. We won special jury prize at the Chicago International Music and Film Award uh, Film Festival. Uh, so yeah, we won some award and then we signed a distribution deal with a, a local a dom- domestic distributor so it's been released in theaters in or in the process in Los Angeles so we got oh. we've been getting nice reviews we got good review in in the LA Times and and uh, this com- this pitchfork gave us a great write-up a, a couple of weeks ago so uh, yeah it's been we've had a nice run so far we're gonna be uh, premiering in New York at the uh, end of August or beginning of September we have a we did a, a kind of a, a premiere out here at the Regent Theater, yeah. which is downtown. And and Joe performed a solo act, and and Annie Hardy, who's in the film, who's from Giant Drag, she performed with a band. With I was actually the drummer was uh, Blackie from uh, uh, Urge Overkill, and Rachel oh, from That Dog played with her. Yeah, and then Melissa Brooks, who's in the film from uh, The Aqua Dolls, also performed. It was a great, great night. It was it was it was a lot of fun. It was it was great. And we're gonna do the same thing in. New York and Manhattan, September 8th at the Bowery Ballroom. You're, you're all invited, by the way. Oh, thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank Name's you. on the door. Great. Yep. Nice. Yeah, Michael, can I just ask you quickly, is Annie as crazy in real life as she is in the film? Why, oh why, did it all go to hell? Why, oh Annie is such a well. She's she's super funny, and she's she's definitely got her own sort of yeah. way of thinking. Uh, I'd yeah, be crazy in a good way, not in a. Yeah, a bad, I mean that might that funny. might be a heightened version of Annie, but 
Annie was originally, she was the one I wanted to host Dirty Laundry when we first started like nine years ago. And, um, you know, I had, she had agreed to do it. And uh, so I was super happy about that. But uh, when it was time to actually shoot an episode with Mike Watt, of all people, I called up Annie and I said, hey, you know, let's, let's go. We're ready to go. Let's, she, you know, she never returned a call and I never heard from her for like years <laughs> till perhaps we shot The Icarus Line Must Die and she was in that. Oh, my. So what's next on the slate? Well, I've got a, this is a science fiction movie that I, you know, I've written the script for. It's called Beyond Apollo. It's a kind of a based on a cult classic science fiction book by a writer named Barry N. Malzberg. Very intense. It's it's his. I mean, that's that's kind of his. Uh, I mean, his the main classic that, he, and he's written several seventy books or so. Uh, so that's something that uh, is there's a book I option that I wrote the script of. Hopefully that'll be the next picture. And then I'm working on a, a, a sort of another picture in a similar vein to this in this spirit. But it's, it's kind of like an acid Western. Huh. Oh, if you know the movie uh, The Shooting by uh, Bonnie Hellman. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of in that spirit and also straight to hell, obviously, uh, Alex Cox. So I want to make a, a Western where we can cast the Courtney Love and Joe Strummers <laughs> of today. You know? Wow. Uh, listeners out there who want to be able to get a chance to watch The Icarus Line Must Die who don't necessarily live in New York or other parts of America that are getting the film in special screenings. Is it uh, made its way into video on demand yet? Yeah, so it's on, uh, it is. It's on iTunes and Amazon and uh, Google Plus and all these other sort of platforms. And we're, you know, we're working on getting a uh, foreign distributor for the picture because uh, you know, I'd love the folks in Australia to see it and all, all over wherever they can but right now it's available I get you know in the states so yeah check out we've got a website the Icarus line must die.com so okay. we'll, we'll like kind of update cool. that any We're chance sure. of uh, putting out a soundtrack We've talked about that, and yeah, it's a possibility, but it's nothing that's like imminent. Okay. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really fascinating having this conversation, and you know, once again, congratulations on you know, the film that you've made. You know, we all really got something out of it. I, I enjoyed it a lot, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, Beyond Apollo and whatever else you do next. Cool. Thank you so much. This, this was great. It was I mean, this kind of round-robin, around-the-world thing is pretty cool. I mean, it's a good time. <laughs> concept and i and it it's a yeah it works okay well we'll be back in a moment you're listening to see here episode 55 we'll be back to talk about what will be in september's episode of the show Hi, I'm John Waters. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Kuhn. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Dwings Hauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. And our huge thanks to 
Michael Grodner for giving us his time. A really fascinating conversationalist. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really sweet guy. That was um, that was great. So let's talk briefly about what's happening in episode 56 of the See Here podcast. Now, I think we need to get a little bit of housework in order. So, Tim, you are leaving Seoul. You are leaving South Korea in the next couple of I weeks. I am. I am. I am making a hasty retreat back to the northern climbs of Cannabis. This is a bit of a historical episode of See Here. The next time that we hear your voice, you'll be... On Brantford time. That's right. I'll be in, like I said, northern regions of Canada battling the timber wolves and the polar bears. Because, as we all know, that they just walk down the street over there and you've got one for a pet in your backyard back home, right? That's right. So the next time that you're back on the show won't be till October. I think you've uh, basically said, please, I'll take a pay cut, but I need September off so I can set myself back up. So we said, all right. Yeah, it's going to hurt. Uh, look, you know what? We'll pay you as much in September as we've been doing till now. We think that you're worth it. So I get those extra cheese sandwiches. I think we should pay Tim double for September, what we already pay him. Consider it done. Okay, I've signed that contract off just right now. Nice. So episode 56, it'll be you and me, Bernie. I'm looking into getting a third wheel to join us. I'll confirm that on the Book of Faces closer to time. But uh, we're going to be doing the second of our three request shows for this year. And this was a film that was requested by a previous co-presenter, Professor Michael Benton, out there at Kentucky College. And he's requested a film made in my backyard, a film from 1986, starring Michael Hutchinson's Saskia Post, Dogs in Space. Now, I've got to confess that as iconic as this film is, I've never seen it. So it'll be uh, an interesting one to watch for the first time, but I'm going to have to do a little bit of research and work out what was going on in my own backyard in the punk scene of the time because I was listening more to Paul Kelly rather than to a lot of um, the bands that I think Dogs in Space is referring to. So that'll be uh, an interesting one. Uh, we each took a turn at selecting a request. We actually had quite a few requests. So this was, uh, I think, your choice, Bernie. It was, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen it for an awful long time. I remember uh, when I did originally watch it, um, I was very heavily into The Birthday Party and Nick Cave, and I believe there is uh, some sort of Boys Next Door connection to this. Right. That was good enough for me then, and uh, I'm kind of a sucker for anything punk-related from the 80s, you know, uh, when it comes to movies and things like that, so um, I'd be very interested to, uh, to revisit it, see how it stands up looking forward to uh, speaking about this one and I'm thinking that this might only be the second Australian film that we've discussed in the whole four and a half years the first one being Oz and this one being the second so uh, we did the Cosmic Psychos documentary. Oh, that that's right. We did too. Yeah. I'd yeah, forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but uh, three is still, we, we still need to up that number a bit, Morris. I know that there had been a request for you know, a Gillian Armstrong film called Starstruck, which I know that Scott Smart, one of our listeners, is very keen for us to cover. So I think that might be on the cards for next year. So we'll see how we go. So anyway, episode 56 of the See Here podcast will be Dogs in Space from 1986. If you wish to follow us on Facebook, you can uh, go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash C here, S-W-H-E-A-R. And we like to get more conversations going in the group on music related movies. So please feel free to join that and make some recommendations or turn us on to films that we may know nothing about or even start up a conversation about a film that 
we do know about, but bring a different angle to it. We always love those sorts of conversations. If you wish to write to us and tell us that you think we're doing a good job or a shit job or just something not related to anything like that, but still music film related, then you can write to us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. Always love the correspondences. Anything else that you want to bring up, Chance? Uh, yeah, don't forget, we are also on Instagram. You can uh, look us up, uh, see here a podcast, all one word. And um, please follow us. Uh, we don't post a huge amount. We do a throwback Thursday thing every week and a few other posts here and there. Join the fun. Join us. Be one of us. Join us. <laughs> one of us. One of us. One of us. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so until next month, be nice to each other. Watch some music related movies, watch any sort of films, listen to great music. It's what we champion all the time. Until then, have a wonderful month. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.